Good morning. Good afternoon, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnKelly.com as well. At St. Alice's Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Glad to be with you. The 11th day of April, 2019. Uh, obviously a very special day in my life. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, lots of stuff to get into in the world of baseball sports and unifying America. And I do appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, anything that's on your mind that you want to chat about in, in regards to uh, anything going on in the world of sports, just please, uh, you can either comment on the Facebook Live or Periscope feed. Um, if you're watching through YouTube, uh, you can always leave some comments in that section. Unfortunately, uh, I don't get those comments till after the show, so I'll be happy to address them. And I try to address everything that's brought up in the show. But, you know, today is an interesting day because I'm thinking uh, I'm thinking about all the different things that are going on in the world of sports. You got the NHL playoffs getting started yesterday, the NBA playoffs right about to get started, the Masters this weekend. You're coming off of the end of the college basketball season, which I find some interest and in. I do want to touch on a couple things going on with that. Uh, I may or may not be able to talk a little bit about baseball and obviously those who have listened and watched the show know that baseball is my sport and it's almost like I feel like I'm missing something if I don't bring up baseball over the content of the show but we'll try to and like I said if you follow the transcript that I put up there just a little preview of the stuff that I'm going to discuss in, on this show today the first thing I wanted to mention and I wanted to talk about the Field of 64, as it's set up, March Madness, obviously we're in April now, so we know that, you know, the college basketball season's over, and the way this tournament was set up, you know, you looked at Duke, you looked at North Carolina, you looked at Gonzaga, you looked at the top teams that were up there, and Virginia was in the mix, so Virginia ends up winning the, the championship, it's not much of a shock, um, maybe the way that it happened is kind of a little bit of a shock. And we look back on it, and I, I really believe that this Virginia team that ends up winning the national championship here could really be kind of summarized in what would be the equivalent of one of those ESPN 30 for 30s. Because everything that has happened going back, I mean, geez, you could go back about over 30 years to the history of Virginia college basketball and how much this championship means to that region. Now, listen, Virginia doesn't get you know major national play, so when it comes to the likes of Duke and the ACC teams, and and, and those teams that are always getting a little more attention, I get it. You know, we look at Virginia, and probably not in the the elite category when we talk about the, this college basketball team. And you can follow what has happened over the last calendar year or so. And you really can put a lot to it when it comes to, you know, just the amazing story that exists there. And it's not an underdog story. It's not one of those mid-majors winning a national championship. It's not one of those surprise teams that you never would have thought in a million years could do it. That would have been Purdue. That would have been Texas Tech. But you look at the way that they did it and the way that they, they battled and really the adversity that they faced going back to last year. The fact that they became the first team in the history of the NCAA tournament to have a number one seed and drop and lose to a number 16 seed. When they lost to MBC, Maryland, Baltimore County, 
as the number one seed, that was probably one of the biggest negatives you could ever say about a franchise. There had been some second seeds that lost to 15 seeds, but there had never been a number one seed that had lost in the first round of a tournament. And obviously what they have come through and gone through this year, not being a favorite, yes, they were a number one seed. So the expectations were that they could make the Final Four, and if you make the Final Four, anything could happen. So nobody's going to sit here and say that they're shocked that Virginia won a national championship. But in the grand scheme of things, looking at Duke, looking at some other teams, they were expected to at some point get knocked off. And the way from the Elite Eight game to the Final Four game to the national championship game, they were in three distinct situations where they could have easily lost. And those games need to be replayed. And those games need to be analyzed and discussed about how close they came to defeat in the last three games that they played. They could have easily lost to Texas Tech. They could have easily lost in the Final Four. They could have easily lost in the Elite Eight. And in some cases, you could say, if you're, a neg if you're negative on Virginia, if you're not a big Virginia fan, you could say that they should have lost in a couple of those instances. And hitting the shots that they did down late in those games were absolutely outstanding. And I think if, if I'm putting together a 30-for-30 30 30 on this Virginia team, obviously you want to discuss those last three games. You want to talk about, sure, mention the fact that they finished 35-3 and three this year, so nobody's going to be shocked that they won a national championship. They were 31-3 last year. The last game that they lost was in the first round to the number 16th seed Maryland-Baltimore County team, which we understand was just unfathomable, should not have happened. And in, in the history of sports, you, know, you look back on some of the bigger upsets in the history, that's got to be up there. So that will be part of it as well. But the other thing you have to throw in, going back 30, what, 35, 36 years, you got to talk about that Virginia team of 1982-1983. A team that had Ralph Sampson, that team that was expected to be one of the best of the best, or in that given field as it was set up to win the national championship, set to be matched up against the Houston Cougars and five Slamma Jamma and Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler. That was expected to be the way that was supposed to go. And, of course, you got Jim Valvano, the NC State team, and obviously the 30 for 30 and all the different things that have been done in discussion about that team. That Virginia team in 1983 in March Madness was the one that was expected to win. And you look at 35, 36 years of a team not being able to recruit the top players, not being able to get a squad together that was considered deep enough to make a run in the NCAA tournament. And it did it last year with the great season that it had. But it all went to shatters when they lost to Maryland Baltimore County as the number one seed going up against the 16th seed. Something that had never happened in NCAA history, in March Madness, ever. So you could talk about maybe the team being a little bit flawed this year. Sure. Could it have lost any one of the three games? Should it have lost all three of the games that they played? Probably. You could make a case that they could have and should have. But they made shots when they were given breaks, whether something went their way, whether they got a call. They ended up hitting their shots. If they miss any one of those shots, they're out, they lose. They're not the national champions. 
So give them all credit in the world for continuing to fight, especially in that Purdue game. That Purdue game looked like there was no way that they could have won that game. And every chance that they got, they hit a shot. And like I said, if I'm putting together the equivalent of a 30-30 for 30 for 30 on this Virginia team, I'm talking about what happened last year when they lost in the first round to NBC. And I'm also talking about 35, 36 years ago, that big Virginia team with Ralph Sampson that was considered one of the best teams in the country. And they lost to NC State in the Final Four. And of course, NC State ends up beating Houston, wins the whole thing. Jim Valvano, yes, all right. You know, that's been embedded in our history if we're thinking about college basketball. But I think more needs to be spoken about this Virginia team. And a great job. Listen, were they ridiculously better than any of their opponents? No. This, this wasn't a juggernaut. This wasn't a team that was expected to just dominate. But this was a pretty damn good team that won three extremely tough games against teams that very well could have beat them. And in the end, they came out ahead. And I think there's 36 years worth of Virginia basketball history that can be put in a nice documentary. And I hope the powers that be are smart enough to put this thing together because it would definitely be worth watching. And like I said, all the emphasis that has been put on what happened with NC State in 1983 and Jim Valvano and obviously his battle of cancer, everything you can say about that. All, you know, positives. And obviously... The, the demise of Jim Valvano, the cancer, the SB speech, you know, those are things that go up there amongst history. But you forget about that Virginia team in 1982-1983, that Ralph Sampson team, that team that dominated it probably should have won or should have been in a mix for the national championship. They lost to NC State in a conference tournament, and then they lost again to NC State in the Final Four. So a reminder that this copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for your entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts in a show without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPLA.com and LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. And I'll take that one and I will dedicate that to the legendary Phil Rizzuto. And I know Phil Rizzuto... May have, may have never done a disclaimer that in-depth, but you know his history as a broadcaster, a funny man, but a, a very good broadcaster, an entertaining broadcaster. And, you know, I just think of him today. You know, last time I did it, I thought a little bit about Ralph Kiner, but today, you know, Phil Rizzuto's on my mind. Uh, you know, good shortstop, probably not the equivalent of a Hall of Famer based off of his play, but certainly a legendary broadcaster, a good player, on those Yankees teams that ended up winning a lot of World Series and MVP, of course, in 1940, uh, what was it, 1949 or 1950. But a very good shortstop, probably not a Hall of Famer, but listen, a legendary broadcaster. And I think his broadcast and talent, everything that he did to, uh, you know, in regards to the landscape of broadcasting as we look at it today, you know, he should be in the Hall of Fame, but as a broadcaster. And... You know, moving on, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Masters as we get ready. Uh, another another week, this is one of the more exciting events in golf, and I think it brings out a lot of fair-weather golf fans, and I'll admit it. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a die-hard golf fan. I don't follow it every single week. I, love, I, I appreciate the sport. I appreciate the accumulated talent that's been built up in it right now. 
And I do think that the talent that exists with the players being able to drive the ball further and really be able to captivate the eyes a little bit more than, let's say, in the 90s or the 80s. And there's no disrespect meant from the likes of the Jack Nicholas's or the Arnold Palmer's who are great at what they did. You know, Lee Trevino, Gary Player, going back in generations before that. There's no disrespect meant about golf of Christmas past. But the talent that exists amongst the players that are out there, you know, the Kepkas, the, you know, Dustin Johnsons, the Rory McIlroy's, they've all kind of gotten good and, and are, have captivated a sport at around the same time. And we talk about the 90s plus being the Tiger Woods era. And the fact that, yes, he, he's competing in the Masters. And the odds makers, because he's won the tournament four different times, you know, put him at 14 to 1. Which, if I'm going to talk about the odds and, let's say, a pick or, you know, somebody that I would really put my money behind and expect to compete very well in this tournament, it probably wouldn't be Tiger Woods. And it's not to say that Tiger Woods should be eliminated. Or he shouldn't be considered at all. Obviously, if he has a good couple rounds, as obviously the tournament's going on right now, if he's in the mix and he get closer to Sunday and he's within a couple shots, sure, I think the the odds would certainly change in his favor because we know of Tiger Woods being that great finisher. And that was one of the things that stood out about Tiger Woods and the dominance that he had and certainly the one of the best athletes and one of the best performers at his sport that I've seen in my lifetime, he he's a great finisher. And obviously he's been away from the game for a while, battling the injuries and battling the off the, the you know the off the green issues that he's had and getting himself back, obviously getting the award that he got, the Ben Hogan Award, for coming back like he did and just being a force, being competitive in a sport that I think a lot of the naysayers may have eliminated him from being in contention to do. Listen, Tiger Woods would be a great story if you won the Masters. I'd love to see it. I'm a Tiger fan. Like I said, I appreciate dominance. And I think there's a difference between appreciating dominance and being what you would call a front runner. You know, I look at the Jordans of the, you know, the 1990s and how dominant he was and how he transcended the NBA, winning the six championships with the Chicago Bulls. I wasn't rooting for him to win every year. In fact, as a Cleveland Cavaliers fan, I was rooting against him most of the time. But looking back, you say, wow, that was great what Jordan did. That was great what Tiger Woods did. It was great if you want to go back as a baseball historian and jump into DeLorean and go to the late 1930s and the late 1940s, early 1950s and talk about how dominant those New York Yankees teams were. And I'll never say that I'm a Yankees fan. I have a hard time rooting for the Yankees in most different spots. But I sure as hell appreciate the dominance. I sure as hell appreciate the fact that they dominated the sport of baseball more and more dominantly than any team that we've ever seen in history. And Tiger Woods did that when it comes to golf. So you can't ever roll him out. But I think 14-1 to odds to win the Masters is a little bit high. Yeah, I look at some of the other ones that are out there, whether it's a Roy McElroy who has the best odds at winning at eight to one. He's looking to complete the Grand Slam. He's won the other three majors, but has never won the Masters. It'd be nice to see him. It'd be nice to see him finish it off, win his, you know, fourth out of the four majors. Brooks Kepka has won two of the last three major tournaments that he's played in. It is thirty to one odds. So if I'm looking to, you know. 
throw a little money here and there saying, hey, I could win 30 times what it is that I put down. It's probably not a bad bet to bet on Brooks Kepka. I did look and I looked at the defending champion, Patrick Reed, 75 to 1 odds. And it's very hard to repeat in a tournament like this. The, you know, at Augusta, all the aura that exists there, the attention that you get. I, I mean, it, it could be done. It has been done, but it's very difficult to do. But he's sitting there at 75 to 1 odds, which I think is a little much for the guy who just won the tournament, you know, a, a calendar year ago. And you look at Ian Woosnam. And Larry Mize, which I have to mention, just because of the ridiculous odds that they have to win a tournament. You want to set yourself up with, let's say, a $20 bet and, you know, be able to put together a nice savings? Take $20 of your money that you have to spare because the odds are not very good. Put it down on an Ian Woosnam or Larry Mize to win the Masters. And get your 2,500 to 1 odds. You want to talk about a lottery ticket? Take $20 that, you know what, maybe you're going to just throw away. Twenty $20 that you're going to use to buy, I don't know, cigarettes or booze or something. And say, hey, we could do without the cigarettes or booze for a couple days or a week. And put it on Ian Woosnam or Larry Mize to win the Masters. 2,500 to 1 odds. That's 2,500. Pretty, pretty nice lottery ticket. And honestly, it's better than playing your stupid numbers when it comes to the pick six or the Powerball because you know you ain't ever going to win that. And I don't want to get into another subject, but the lottery as it's set up is pretty much rigged. But talking and kind of transitioning smoothly to rigged lotteries, we're going to talk about the NHL right now. The NHL draft lottery came out. And those who know me know that I'm a New Jersey Devils fan, but I, I still got to call it for what it is. The New Jersey Devils getting the first overall pick for the second time in three years. And a draft that is pretty stacked. You look at the two top players that are in there. There's Akaka and uh, I forgot the other guy's name. Pardon me. But, uh, you know, he's got a brother that's playing in the NHL as well. The two top players... And there's a significant drop-off this year. So the Devils getting the number one pick, the Rangers getting the number two pick. So if you're a local hockey fan, either the Devils or the Rangers, you know the seasons haven't gone too well. Devils had a little bit higher expectations than the Rangers. Rangers are kind of rebuilding. Devils a little bit of a disappointment. And if you're watching the Islanders, which, you know, they go out there, win an overtime game against the Pittsburgh Penguins. And, you know, you look at the playoffs the way it's set up right now. And Tampa Bay. It is an interesting team to look at because they had a 3 nothing lead. And like I said, I don't want to get too time contingent with stuff. I don't ever really want to talk about what happened yesterday. I want the content of my show to last a little bit longer than just what happened yesterday. But having a 3 nothing lead, being the number one seed, being the best team in the NHL by a mile, which the Tampa Bay Lightning were this year, and losing to Columbus could set them back and could put them in a position where they could potentially have their season end in the first round. Now, I think they'll win in five or win in six. It won't be a problem. You know, Columbus is a good team. It's not like they're a joke. They're not Maryland, Baltimore County going up against Virginia like I talked about before. They're, they're good. They're going to give them a fight. John Tortorella, you know, the way that he plays hockey or he has 
instilled in his players to kind of dive for everything, take shots, you know, 100 miles an hour, off your leg, off your belly, whatever, keep it, keep the puck from getting in the net. You know, that type of coaching has a little bit of a short shelf life, I believe. If you look at Tortorella, he kind of, his ways kind of wear on their players a little bit sooner than some other coaches. But I think he's got a big series in him with this Columbus team. It's not that bad. Now I'm not going to go over the results of game one and say, oh, hey, Columbus is going to win. I still think Tampa Bay can win this series in you know six or seven games or even in five. But I look at the rest of the Eastern Conference and you know the Islanders, a nice win over the defending champion Penguins. Penguins have won two of the last three Stanley Cups. Who cares where they're seated? They're not towards the top of the conference. They're still a battle-tested team, a team that's ready for the postseason. You saw that in Game 1, and I think you're going to see it over a course of a deep series that could probably go seven games. So I look at Pittsburgh. I look at you know Tampa Bay, which should be the favorite. You got Washington who won a Stanley Cup a couple years ago. You got the you know the Islanders, and obviously if you're you know New York centric, like I don't want this show to ever be, but I have to represent that that area or this region. You know the Islanders are in a in a, in a spot where they got a good coach, they got a good general manager, goalie looked good. I think this is a team that can make a run. The Eastern Conference. In the NHL, I think, is going is pretty deep this year. I think it's stronger than that of the Western Conference. That being said, no disrespect meant towards the Calgary Flames, who I think are probably the favorite to come out of that conference. I, mean, I look at San Jose, I look at Nashville, and, and I, I spoke about this last year. In Nashville, when it comes to hockey, I tell you, you, you want to you talk about an arena that's lit up, that fans seem to come out all over to support a team. It's going to be tough winning in Nashville if they ever get themselves in a position where their home game means something in regards to them moving on to the next round. And Mom says, hi, hi, Mom. Thanks for tuning in. But when it comes down to the grand scheme of the NHL playoffs, the Eastern Conference is a little bit deeper. I like Calgary. I think they can do some damage. I think Nashville could do some damage. Give me a quick Final Four of what I what I think. You know, I could see a Calgary-Nashville, you know, conference final if it could work out that way. Um, I look at Tampa Bay and I say, hey, Tampa Bay is going to be the favorite until they get knocked off. But don't rule out Pittsburgh. And I certainly wouldn't rule out the New York Islanders. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Just a reminder that Castro provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. Before I get to the NBA playoffs, which I think there's a couple tidbits that I want to touch on, I got to bring up the situation with Magic Johnson and the Los Angeles Lakers. And you talk about things that are almost set up in kind of like a Mickey Mouse type of environment. What has happened to the Los Angeles Lakers? One of the supreme teams in all of professional sports. That's where players would leave their respective teams to go win in L.A. You have it going back to the days of Will Chamberlain, to the days of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, Shaq. You talk about LeBron just leaving Cleveland to go to L.A. Now, this is all done for a reason. You got the top scorers, top four scorers in the NBA history, including Carl Malone, who went there to try to win. And there's a reason that top players in the NBA want to go to Los Angeles and play for the Lakers. 
It's that reputation. Pretty similar to what I was talking about before. When you talked about the when I spoke about the Bulls of the 90s or the Yankees of the late 30s and early 1950s. You want to be part, if you're a great player, of one of the most legendary and dominant organizations that has ever existed in a respective sport. That's why the top players want to play in LA with the Lakers. LeBron goes there, obviously a younger team, a team that could have made the playoffs this year. I would be shocked if the LA Lakers were playing in the playoffs, but I certainly wouldn't have looked at him, looked at them as a prohibitive favorite to win the NBA championship or at least compete with the likes of the Golden State Warriors. That being said, this is a franchise that has fallen a little bit from grace. Magic Johnson came over there a handful of years ago with the thoughts that he was going to be able to revitalize this organization, which obviously going back to his time, certainly before his time, and certainly after his time, as we hit the halfway point here in the past ball show, we'll let the cuckoo clock go the whole thing. Magic Johnson was part of some of the Laker dominance of the 80s. He was expected to bring that back. And in his bizarre meeting that he had with Jeannie Buss, sits there for three hours with her, and then afterwards basically announces that he's leaving. Doesn't mention a word in the three-hour meeting that he has with Jeannie Buss, which obviously is showing that he has no respect for the woman. Maybe he has no respect for women at all. But for him to handle things the way that he did is a sign of how far the Lakers have fallen. And it's a shame that you need a guy like Magic Johnson, a guy who's a legendary figure, an icon of the organization, to come back and kind of throw some salt on the wounds of an organization that has been struggling. They're losing credibility in that region. The Golden State Warriors are making a bid to win their fourth NBA title in five seasons. They've been to four straight NBA Finals. A Golden State team that was kind of looked at as the Little League version of the NBA West Coast over in the, the state of California. And they got some of the best players in the game, Duran and Curry and Trey Thompson. I'm sorry, Clay Thompson. But you look at the Lakers and how far they've fallen. The Clippers getting in there as the eighth seed. You got the Clippers Warriors round one. There's no talk about the Lakers. LeBron, not only not getting to his ninth straight NBA final, he's not even in the playoffs this year. And he got Magic Johnson basically, and I, I understand he's got no shame. If you're Magic Johnson, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with knowing what it is that you are. You know you're a legend. You know, you could do just about whatever you want. He went out there, threw some of his money in, and bought the Dodgers. He involved himself now with the Lakers. But he's got to admit, at least as he's walking away, that his time in L.A. running the franchise just now was a failure. And I know icons and Hall of Famers and people that are up there amongst the best of the best will have a hard time admitting this. And I'll have a hard time looking in the mirror and saying that, you know what? For this little bit of time, they sucked. Phil Jackson, when he ran the New York Knicks a couple years ago, comes back to the city in New York, the place where he won a couple NBA championships with. Obviously went to Chicago, won all those championships as the coach of the Bulls. Went to the Lakers, had nothing but success. Comes to the Knicks 
and he was terrible. He didn't get the job done. When he ends up walking away, he's got to admit that for that time, he sucked. And the same thing Magic Johnson's going to have to do. And I don't care if he wants to do it in a goofy way. I don't care if he wants to basically put the Lakers out to be the mockery that they are. And sure, they are. They've been an embarrassment. They're not one of the worst teams in the league, but there's a lot higher expectations when you go out there and LeBron James chooses you. It's not like you went on this big recruiting effort to get the big player. You guys basically stepped in shit. You stepped in shit when LeBron James decided that he was going to go play for you, that he wanted to play for the Los Angeles Lakers. And sure, LeBron deserves some of the blame, the coaching, you know, Luke Walton. Some of the players there, whether they're veterans or young players, deserve the blame. Mitch Kupchak deserves some blame. Jeannie Buss deserves some blame. But Magic Johnson deserves some blame. And as he sits there and laughs through his three-hour discussion he has with Jeannie Buss, knowing that he's going to step down and quit as soon as this thing is over, he needs to look in the mirror and realize that he screwed up. He did a terrible job in L.A. Magic Johnson, as the executive for the Los Angeles Lakers, was not a good thing. And him walking away should be a signification that he did a terrible job. So as we get into the NBA playoffs, you obviously got Golden State getting the number one seed. Denver, who made a pretty good run, kind of reminded me of Houston last year. A lot of wins. Didn't, you know, is in a good position. You know, you look at Houston as the number four seed playing Utah, probably one of the more interesting matchups you're going to see. I think that one certainly could go either way. But in the end, you got to ask yourself, what team out of the Western Conference is competing with Golden State? I know Houston took them to seven games in the Western Conference Finals last year. Can Houston be in that position to play them again in the Conference Finals? they got to get through Utah first. And in fact, they're not going to play in the Finals. Houston has the four seed is set up. If they win and Golden State wins, they go at it in round number two. Maybe that's the biggest fight that Golden State's going to have. I don't believe a lot in Denver. I think they got a good team. I really do. But I can't see them beating Golden State. So the question is going to be in the Eastern Conference, is there a team in that conference that could go up there and beat Golden State in the best of seven series? And I'll tell you this, I'll believe it when it happens. And it's going to be that simple. You know, I know you got the Greek freak in Milwaukee. Boston has been a little bit of a disappointment this year. Philadelphia has had higher expectations. Maybe one of those two teams can make a run. Toronto, are they a little bit better with Kawhi Leonard than they were without Kawhi Leonard? They sure embarrassed themselves last year going up against Cleveland. Can they make a run in this tournament? Yeah, I like Milwaukee. Like I said, I could see Toronto maybe playing with a little bit of house money, but I know they're getting frustrated there. They fired their coach after being a number one seed last year, one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference, for not getting by Cleveland. Well, there's no Cleveland this year. So who's going to come out of that East? And if, if it is Milwaukee, if it is Boston or Philadelphia, and look at we look at the construction of the Boston and the Philadelphia rosters as they went through the playoffs last year. These were two teams that looked like they were primed to take that next shot and that next run and maybe be a contender in the, in the NBA Finals. 
And I don't know if I could trust either one of those two teams. That being said, if I'm looking at a sleeper, maybe somebody that has underperformed this year that could put things together right now in the NBA and in the playoffs, it could be Boston, it could be Philadelphia. I think Philadelphia-Brooklyn's going to be a fun series, especially if Embiid is not playing. It looks like he may be out for Game 1. And if he is out for Game 1, if you're Brooklyn, if you want a chance to win this series, you want a chance to move on in the next round and maybe have the possibility to play Toronto, you've got to win Game 1. And I understand the energy is going to be high. The energy in the Nassau Coliseum for the Islanders was high. New York fans who are probably frustrated now. Giants, Jets not doing well. Rangers, Devils not doing well. The Knicks, you know about the story with them. So you got the Brooklyn Nets and you got the New York Islanders. Maybe you're having some carryover fans that maybe follow one of the other teams that are going out there and just want something to watch. Just want to see some prominence and some success. I don't expect the Brooklyn Nets to go very far, but let's be serious. The Brooklyn Nets were not really expected to be a playoff team. Maybe in an ideal scenario was maybe 42 and 40, and I don't think I could have predicted that when the season started. So they're certainly playing with house money. And if they could go out there and they could win a hard felt and a deep series against the Philadelphia 76ers, good for them. You know, it's just unfortunate right now, and I know that they've made some great strides. They certainly have. They've gone from being a team that was probably at the bottom of the NBA for a little while. They made that trade with the Celtics to get Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett, and that obviously blew up in their face, led to a regime change, led to a change of a series of different players and different coaches. You got Kenny Atkinson now. You got you know Marks as a general manager. So it looks like they built the team that should be sustainable over time. So if I'm a Brooklyn Nets fan, sure, ride out the postseason and anything that you can get out of it. If they can get a couple wins against Philadelphia, if they can get past the first round, take all that, build it up, store it, and apply it next year where the expectations are going to be a little higher. And I'm going to compare the Brooklyn Nets to the New Jersey Devils in hockey last year. And I know we're comparing two different sports. I'm kind of jumping all over the place. You know, whatever. It is what it is. The New Jersey Devils were kind of in the same situation as the Brooklyn Nets were coming into this year, last year. They had a young team. A lot of chemistry. A lot of things went well. You know, Nico Heischer was the number one overall pick. You know, in the draft the previous year is up there contributing. Taylor Hall is, you know, having probably one of his best seasons. They're getting some good goaltending. They get into the playoffs. They make a little bit of a run. And you look back on it and you say, hey, the New Jersey Devils shouldn't have been here. And obviously we're talking about last year. And the, what struggle, what the struggle they end up going through is backing up that series of expectations that's going to be out there. And that's what the Brooklyn Nets are going to have to deal with next year. Like I said, you're playing with house money. You can beat the 76ers, maybe give the Toronto Raptors a nice run in the next round of the, the playoffs. Good for you. I just don't think they're winning a championship. I don't think they're getting to the Eastern Conference Finals. I'm sorry. And like I said, you could be as pro-New York as you want. You could love this team. You could have watched it from, you know, game one to game, you know, 80, whatever, into the playoffs as we are right now. 
and be behind it, I just don't think that it's strong enough to make a deep run in the playoffs. That being said, the expectations are going to grow when next season starts. And the Brooklyn Nets are going to be expected to build off of what they did this year. And hopefully they won't turn in to the New Jersey Devils, who took major steps back and were one of the worst teams in the Eastern Conference in hockey this past season. This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste of smoothness and drinkability you will find at no beer at any cost. So, you know, we've had pretty much a rapid-fire show, a little bit of a recap to this point. We spoke a little bit about the Masters. Uh, you want to play some uh, major odds. You want to buy yourself a lottery ticket instead of wasting that money on those Powerball tickets that you know your numbers are never going to come up. Put a couple bucks on a 2,500-to-1 shot, whether it's Larry Mize or Ian Woosnam. Obviously, your more favorable things, if you're going to pick uh, a reasonable player to finish in the top 10, per se, you know, Roy McElroy is a favorite at eight to one. Brooks Kepka at thirty to one. Patrick Reed, the defending champ, seventy-five to one. Adam Scott at fifty to one is probably a good bet. You know, we also spoke a little bit about Virginia, the history of that college basketball franchise, and how the results of this past year. And I got to be honest, the NCAA tournament I wasn't so excited for. I looked at it and I thought it was very top-heavy. And if you follow really up to the Elite Eight. Most of the cards kind of went the way that they were expected. But then you started to see some upsets. You know, the likes of the Purdue's and the Texas Tech's and the Michigan State's. You know, it was a very good run and a very good, from the Elite Eight on, a very good tournament to watch. Virginia wins the national championship. Of course, a lot of adversity. They had a face being a number one seed last year and losing in a first round to Maryland, Baltimore County, something that had never happened in the history of college basketball. They go out there and win the championship this year. 35, 36 years ago, the Ralph Sampson team going up against NC State. They haven't had any prominence or any dominance since then. So it's nice to see, and I'm sure you look at Ralph Sampson and that you know, anybody that's left from that team that's still alive, they're probably pretty happy that Virginia won the whole thing. NHL, NBA previews, I don't know. Like I said, I look at, you know, look at Tampa Bay. They dominated the NHL. And I tell you, the playoffs in hockey are so different than that of any other sport. Because you, you can look at a team like, let's say, the Boston Red Sox in baseball last year. Best team in baseball, 108 wins. They go out there and win the World Series. Golden State Warriors, whether they win the most games in their conference or the league, they're considered the best team top to bottom, hands down. They're not getting knocked off. They're winning championships. But the NHL is different. Tampa Bay almost has the curse to look at because they had the best team in the NHL over a year. They had the most points. They call it the President's Trophy Jinx. And, and that's always something you got to face in the NHL because that game and the playoffs are so different than any other sport. So I would be surprised to see Tampa Bay get knocked off. Obviously, they lose the first game. I don't think they're losing the series. But you look at the likes of Boston and Washington and Pittsburgh and the Islanders. A, a lot of those teams match up pretty well against each other. So it pretty much is a toss-up. So if we're talking about odds like we were talking about earlier – when it comes to betting on golf, 
maybe I put some odds on a team like the Islanders or a team like Pittsburgh. And it's funny, the two, two of the last three years, the Pittsburgh Penguins have won the Stanley Cup. And I bet you could get some good odds on them winning the Stanley Cup again. Probably better odds than that if you were going to bet on Tampa Bay. And I look out in the Western Conference, and I think a team like Calgary, who hasn't gotten a lot of national attention, certainly here in the United States, really does seem to be that good. I like Nashville coming out of that conference. I like the adrenaline and the energy that they get off of their fans in playoff games. So it's going to be interesting to see how it turns out. I'm going to finish off the show today with a little bit of baseball because, you know, I really couldn't go a show without mentioning baseball at all. And I was talking about this with a buddy off air. We were trying to think who is, you know, if you're going to put a top five together of the best Offensive players in baseball. And the reason I say offensive players is because, we, you know, in a new era where we talk about war and, you know, all the analytical stats, we want to try to talk about how good a pitcher is in comparison to a batter. That's apples and oranges. A pitcher does something completely different than a, a, a position player does. So I can't say that a pitcher is better than a hitter or a hitter is better than a pitcher. I think those are two separate categories, two separate discussions that you can have. But when it comes to offensive players in baseball, we could all agree, and I bet you most of us could agree, that Mike Trout is the best player right now, has been over the past five years, and until some at some point he shows any sign of decline, is going to be considered the best baseball player, the best offensive position player in baseball. Now, who is second? Because I think that's a good discussion. And I think there's a good debate you could have between a Boston right fielder and a New York Yankees right fielder. Because you're probably talking about, in Aaron Judge, one of the better up-and-coming stars of the game. And if you're a New York Yankee fan, you probably got your number 99 jersey. And I'll tell you, if you have a number 99 jersey and somehow haven't printed the guy's last name on the top of that number, I don't know what kind of New York Yankees fan you are. Because the Yankees, going back to their inception when they took over as a new team to replace the Baltimore Orioles in 19-3, have never had the players' names on the back of their jersey, ever. And I understand they do it a little bit in spring training, but the Yankees have been known as one of the few franchises in professional sports that do not put names on the back of their jersey. So I digress from that. Aaron Judge, certainly one of the better up-and-coming players in a game. That great season that he had in 2017, hitting the 51 home runs. He was on pace to probably do that again. Got hurt towards the end of last year. Certainly backed up that great rookie season that he had. And Mookie Betts in Boston, 346 batting average, won the MVP last year. He doesn't strike out. So I look at those two players and their positions that they play. They both play right field. And it probably is, at least in my opinion, according to JohnPLA.com, Passball Show, myself, the whole thing, it's a discussion between Mookie Betts and Aaron Judge. And I give a slight edge to Mookie Betts, but I will say this. If you said Aaron Judge is the second best player in baseball, I wouldn't tell you that you're completely insane. I wouldn't try to prove to you that you were wrong. I believe that there is enough of an argument that you could make that Aaron Judge is the better player right now. And I do believe that you could make just as an equivalent of an argument if you're talking about Mookie Betts right now. And I give Betts a slight edge. I say he doesn't strike out as much. 
He hits for a higher average. He plays a little bit better defense, but I'm not talking about it in a way to diminish anything that Aaron Judge does or can bring to the table. I'm not trying to make the argument that Mookie Betts is great and Aaron Judge sucks. That's not what I'm saying. But if I'm going Mike Trout being number one, I'm going Mookie Betts number two. I'll go Aaron Judge number three. And the next player that I'm going to talk about is somebody that probably gets nowhere near the respect and credit that he deserves for being as good of a ball player as he is. And that's Nolan Arenado of the Colorado Rockies. He, he's one of the, year after year, a dominant offensive player, puts 35, 40 home runs up every year, drives in well over 100 runs, hits 300, is probably this generation's equivalent to a Brooks Robinson at third base as a defender, and doesn't get the national credit that he deserves. And, you, you know, you hear it, it kind of segue into this discussion about Mike Trout. Mike Trout not being that, uh, I don't know, transcending player. Everything he does on the back of the baseball card proves that he's the best player in baseball. But doesn't get that national attention. And I actually think that's a lot of hooey. It is. It's a lot of, uh, you know, a narrative that's thrown out there by the national media saying that, well, because Mike Trout's not in the playoffs every year because the Angels are not that good of a team. They haven't assembled enough talent around them. Or the talent that they've assembled around them has not equated to a strong enough run in the postseason to be a World Series champion or at least play it in the World Series. And that all is not Mike Trout's fault. You can talk about him playing for the Angels, which we know are like the Mets of New York. You know, the Mets are always going to be the little brother to the Yankees. The Angels out in L.A. are always going to be the little brother to the Los Angeles Dodgers. It's just a fact. It's just the way it is. But Mike Trout has performed probably at such an elite level that he is starting to get the national attention that he deserves. And you could say nobody knows who Mike Trout is. Listen, I think a lot of people know who Mike Trout is. And I think a lot more baseball fans, good baseball fans, Fairweather fans, and fans that just kind of watch the sport a little bit here and there. More of them know who Mike Trout is than a couple years ago. And certainly no more, more know about Mike Trout than know about Nolan Arenado. So last player, as you're watching my uh, starting lineup figures just uh, fall to the floor, which I guess I'm going to have to pick them up in a little bit. The last point that I want to make is the player that I think in Major League Baseball that without a doubt is a top five player that doesn't get a lot of love and respect. Also plays for a losing team. And that's Joey Votto. And if you follow what Joey Votto has done, I mean, I think you can look at his contract and say that pretty similar to most other players in Major League Baseball is probably, you know, you could say maybe he's overpaid. Maybe he got a big-time a big time contract. And most players in that situation do not live up to the likes of that type of contract. And Joey Votto has absolutely done that and beyond. And this is a guy, maybe not off the best start this year, but if you look back at his year last year, his really the last decade, this guy has been one of the best players in the entire sport. In a sport that is so saturated with hitters that strike out, he goes out there and he gets the 170, 180 hits every year. He hits between 300 and 320. He draws over 100 walks. So he pretty much has that 300 batting average, that 400 
on base. Slugging was a little bit down last year. But I still look at him over the grand scheme of the last decade, and I'm willing to give him a little bit of a pass last year. Playing for a bad Reds, bad Reds team, a team that's going to have a little bit higher expectations right now. And I think it'll be interesting if this year he starts to kind of fall a little bit. We'll start to talk about the contract that he has. And the fact, over the course of the next five seasons or four seasons from 2020 to 2023, he's getting paid $25 million a year. We'll start to talk about the negative aspects of it as obviously he's hitting the second part of his 30s. You can talk about that with Pujols. You can talk about that with A-Rod. You can talk about that with any of the top players in Major League Baseball. And maybe this is the year where we'll start to see Joey Votto decline. I'm going to pay a little more attention to what we see out of Joey Votto this year. This is a guy who did battle a couple injuries last year. Certainly, for the first time, probably in the previous 10 years or so, saw some decline in his bat. He hit 284. He didn't hit 300. You look at a guy for the better part of the prior 10 years was a well over 300 hitter, an OPS guy that's in the high 90s or over 1,000. But I still look at him as one of the top five players or top five position players in baseball. Obviously, there's guys knocking on the door. Christian Yelich winning the MVP last year with Milwaukee coming off of the season and the start that he's he's had this year. Looks like he's on his way. Alex Bregman, I know he's battling an injury. He's going to be out for a couple weeks. But the breakout season he had last year... I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of waiting. I want to see it again. You see it again, you start to talk about Bregman being on the peripheries of being in the top five. Bryce Harper, you know, he had that great MVP season a couple of years back with the Nationals. Really hasn't backed it up since. And you know he's playing in Philadelphia now. He's got that big contract. Uh, you're going to be talking about Bryce Harper probably in so many different ways. You're going to talk about the expectations that are going to go with that contract. The expectations of going to a place in Philadelphia where they're, I'm not going to say they're starved for winning a World Series. They won it in 2008, got back there in 2009. You could probably talk about the era or the time from 2000, really 2008 to 2011 or 2007 to 2011 as probably the most successful time in the, what, 120 or 130 year history of the Philadelphia Phillies and their franchise. Harper's going to go there with expectations. Sure. The season he had in 2015 was one of the better MVP seasons that we've seen in recent memory. But since then, he has struggled. Not just to hit for a high batting average, 243, 319, 249 batting averages last three seasons, not counting this year. But he's also struggled to stay healthy in certain times. And at Washington Nationals team with the likes of an Anthony Rendon and Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg. The expectations that are up with that, they never made a big run in the playoffs. So we're looking at Bryce Harper, franchise player, sure, but a player that probably hasn't transcended himself or his team very far. And you could say, hey, well, what about Mike Trout? Mike Trout's teams have not won anything. But Mike Trout, numbers, year after year, you say, hey, this guy's the best player in the sport. Bryce Harper hasn't had either one of them since his MVP season in 2015. And that's a problem. you got to do either one or the other. Either be a good player that may not be putting up the numbers that you expect, but you're leading your team to victory, or a player that is just so good that's putting up those numbers year after year. Either one or the other. And Bryce Harper hasn't done that. 
So if I'm thinking about Bryce Harper being a top five position player at all Major League Baseball, pretty similar to Yelich, pretty similar to Bregman, even similar to Aaron Judge in a little bit, I just want to see it again. I want to see Harper have that season where he captivates the National League, where he, he puts the Philadelphia Phillies on his back, which he certainly has the opportunity to do this year. You got Reese Hoskins hitting him back. You got Real Muto over there. You got a team in Philadelphia that's ready to win right now. And they brought you in because they think that Bryce Harper is the player to get them to the promised land. I want to see it again. Paul Goldschmidt is a guy that I think of along the lines of an Arenado or a Votto. A guy who year after year keeps putting up these kind of numbers. Now you may say, hey, he's not, he hasn't done it in Arizona. Well, he's in St. Louis now. He's off to a good start. It's the type of player that you want to see win because you look at the back of the baseball card and you see year after year, he just puts up numbers like that. He is like probably Joey Votto when Joey Votto's not Joey Votto anymore. And then I look at J.D. Martinez, a guy who I will continue to say on this show because I'm not right very often. So when I'm right, I'm going to gloat about it. I spoke about J.D. Martinez and how good of a player he was going to be back when he was with the Houston Astros. Back in 2011, 2012. I said, this guy has got ridiculous power. It's going to be impossible to see him play in the major leagues and not hit 40 home runs or hit almost 50 home runs and win MVPs. And this player has been that good going back to his time with the Detroit Tigers. So I look at him as a top 10 player, absolutely, when it comes to position players. Maybe next week we'll talk a little bit about pitchers. I do want to thank everybody for tuning in to the show. We're almost in overtime mode right now. Like I said, from a time-sensitive standpoint, I don't really want to go any more than you know 40 minutes because I understand from attention spans. I have attention span issues myself. You know, I want to make sure that the audience and those that do choose to watch the show can stay engaged and intrigued enough. So I do want to thank everybody for tuning in. Show will be on replay. If you missed anything, it'll be up on YouTube. I'll share it again through social media, but also available on iTunes and Google Play. Once again, this is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side. And actually, we forgot something. So, once again, past ball show, always weird things going on, but we're jumping back in. Today is April 11th, and 13 years ago was probably the greatest day of my life, hands down. We welcomed my daughter, Alexis, into this world. She is turning 13 today. And whenever we talk about, you know, moments... In baseball history, I always want to try to tie them, whether it's the birth of either one of my parents or my son or, you know, my wife, which I'll talk about at some point. And I'm digging into the history of baseball, and I didn't find or couldn't find anything intriguing enough. So I'll throw a couple silly things out there that happened to happen on this day in 2006 in baseball. Four minor league players were suspended for 50 games each for violation of the new steroid policy that they invoked in Major League Baseball. And this happened April 11, 2006. And the reason it was significant is because baseball had just gotten 
its stricter drug policy in there with performance enhancing drugs and hadn't enforced it and decided to enforce it on this day for minor league players. None of them ever really amounted to very much in the majors, but they were all suspended for 50 games. And you remember Congress getting involved and probably being the reason that Bud Selig kind of started paying a little more attention. This got Bud Selig into the Hall of Fame, which we know that, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a hypocrisy. The guy that enabled steroids for so long is in the Hall of Fame, and the players that use steroids kind of, due to the fact that Bud Selig didn't care that they were using it, are held out. But once again, different discussion, different time. You could go to probably 100 other of my shows and hear me rant and rave about this garbage. That being said, minor league baseball players, four of them get suspended on this day, April 11, 2006. Derek Lee signs a long-term extension with the Chicago Cubs, coming off of a 45 home run season. He didn't necessarily back that contract up. Bronson Arroyo hits a home run in his second consecutive start after never hitting a home run in major league, in his Major League Baseball career before that, at this time playing for the Cincinnati Reds. So, once again, God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side.